Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Anit here to introduce this special episode coming to you from the Sound Education Conference in Boston. In a couple of seconds, you'll hear Kristaps, but before you do, he asked me to let you know that you can expect the next episode of the Eastern Border in about a week. Okay, happy listening, and see you soon. Greetings, comrade Duncan. Welcome to the Eastern Border. Thank you for having. We have been we have been wanting a nice man from the KGB have been have been very curious about your show since you started touching sensitive subjects which might put the glorious revolution of our motherland under bad light, shall we say? No, actually, really, really glad you're here and uh, have to put on my thick Russian accent sometimes because people forget about it and. Wow, I'm honored because I started listening to you since the very beginning of the history of Rome days. I was poked at that, and you're, you're one of the inspirations why I'm doing my own show, by the way. You and Mr. Mr. Carlin, whom I had the luck and pleasure to meet last year. So it's like meeting a living legend here, and now you're covering a subject that is literally what my whole show is about, telling the study of my people. I personally believe that this is going to be one of the hardest, hardest revolution series ever up to date, especially once you get to the Civil War part. I agree. So, uh, have, have at it. Well, there, there is a reason. Why, I mean, people asked me before I started the, this revolution, you know, is it going to be as long as the French Revolution? Uh, because I used to say nothing could ever be as long as the French Revolution series, which was 55 episodes. And uh, I think the Russian Revolution is going to blow right past that. Because... What are we at? I'm, I'm just doing episode 18, I think, this week, and I'm somewhere back in the 1880s, and I'm not planning on rushing this thing at all. It reminds me, I, I'm doing my Stalin series now. I'm on episode 19 of that. Yeah, okay. Stalin barely just got power in 1935. Okay, yeah, he's, he's, gradu- he's graduated from high school. <laughs> yeah, approximately. <laughs> no, I understand how these things go, because mm-hmm. I made my own Lenin series. Mm-hmm. I didn't focus on the Bakunin part or previous part of that. I just focused on Lenin. Which was, you know, when you compare Lenin to Stalin, it's a super fascinating story. Sure. Also, you have to mention that poor Lenin was very offended when they stole his cow. Yes. I promise I will put that anecdote in it, the show it's a, for you. It's a documented one of that. Sure. 
And the problem is, like, obviously it doesn't matter as much as in political views, but there was a running gag through the Soviet Union is that this is why he hated the Kulaks so much, because they stole <laughs> they his stole cow. cow. Okay. But the idea is that he was one of the proponents of the idea that, yes, total starvation, total nihilism, don't feed the peasants, make them do revolution. And when, you know, when I'm going through that, because that revolution also, also gave birth to my own country. We were parts of Teutonic Order, then parts of Sweden, parts of Poland-Lithuania, parts of France for a bit, had a British governor too at some point. At the climax, at the aftermath of all of this civil massive war, Matt Barron got a special episode on my show, should get a special episode in your show. He will. He will. Matt Barron is one of the more interesting figures. Dear listeners, I share this man's appreciation of Talleyrand. Mm. I love him. <laughs> my dad taught me to love this guy. He's great. With the Revolutions podcast, much more so than with the history of Rome, you touch subjects that are, well, sensitive to a lot of people in the various, various periods. Like, the French revolutions are very important to people in France. The American Revolution, well, uh, I'm here in Boston and I see American flags everywhere just to remind me that, you know, I'm still here. Same with the Russian Revolution, which is still put under much doubt and very much discussed and even politicized today in Russia. How do you deal with all this? Because you, you, you have chosen a subject that's truly you know, mind-blowing and a bit staggering and in the sense that you can offend so many people, yet I have, haven't heard anyone being truly offended about you. Except me for like one small period of time about Pachomkin's villages. But right, yeah, 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 yeah. Because it is different working in more modern history than Roman history. There's very little to get too upset about when it comes to Roman history. Um, nobody is like the Romans, you know, destroyed. It's not that it doesn't happen, but it was 2,000 years ago. As opposed to, as you say, the French Revolution is still argued about in France to this very day. I mean, there are still royalists kicking out there uh, who think that everything that the revolution was a bad idea and everything that happened since then has been a giant mistake. There are hardcore Republicans out there who believe exactly the opposite. You know, Robespierre, is he a hero? Is he a villain? This is still very important. These are still important debates that are happening. And then also, as you say, the revolution is in a major way the genesis of what is currently the French national character. So when you are describing the birth process of the French national identity, people are going to have opinions about it, and you do have to treat it a certain way. The same thing happens with the Haitian Revolution. I mean, when you're talking about something that is that important, not just to Haiti, um, but really to then the entire Caribbean and all of the Americas, and really in terms of global history, having this slave revolt found its own sovereign independent nation, having that be an important thing, not just for those people, but for the whole world. Um, yeah, these are still very live wire issues. And my approach to it has always been to treat whatever people I'm dealing with, whatever group or proto-nation that then becomes a nation in the process of a revolution, because that's a lot of what this is, is the birth of new nations, to treat them with empathy, first of all, if not outright sympathy, then at least empathy, and to try to see, I'm always trying to see things from the perspective of the people who did have to live through them. Like, what, what was it actually like to be a citizen of Caracas in you know, in 1796 and in 1797, what were they actually fighting for? What were they actually trying to do? Um, what were the 
what were the subtle distinctions about their culture that made it different from somebody else's culture? What are the things that they can be proud of? What are the things that they swept under the rug that maybe they shouldn't have swept under the rug and you should still talk about because it still has an impact on your, your life and culture today? I, I, got, I got a lot of, one of the most gratifying things has been when I was going through like the Spanish-American revolutions that people were emailing me from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Argentina, and they were saying, you know, I went through high school in Venezuela. They taught us the revolution, of course, but they didn't teach us a lot of the stuff that you talked about. In the United States, we have an absolute, I mean, you get it here in Boston a lot of the time. There's a his, uh, an official narrative of these revolutions with heroes and villains, which is fine to celebrate as long as you're also talking about everything else that happened around it. As long as you're a massive fan of Paul Revere. I have never been so annoyed by Paul Revere in uh, my life. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, of course. Uh, Paul, Paul Revere is actually a really interesting guy um, who I think I, who I think has been let down by the myth-making around yes, him. I, I think as, I as an that. individual who lived through a historical period, I think Paul Revere was a, was a pretty interesting dude um, and deserves more than just mm -hmm. being the face on a can of beer. But it, So it comes down to that, is treating with empathy whatever group of people you're approaching. And I think that that puts you on pretty solid ground in terms of not just blowing in and saying like, well, this is my opinion about a bunch of stuff that, you know, that I don't know anything about, um, or, or I'm gonna judge you for doing X, Y, and Z. Um, to try to see it from the Hungarian perspective, right? Yeah. You know, if you got to deal with the Hungarian Revolution, try to see it from the Hungarian perspective, and then you talk about the Austrians. You see it from the Austrian perspective, and now you're talking about a clash between two groups of people, the Austrians and the Hungarians, let's say. And if you try to see it from both of their points of view, now you're creating a really interesting historical narrative instead of trying to, you know, even though I, obviously, um, as much as I love Talleyrand, it's pretty clear that I uh, will roll my eyes at Metternich, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's understandable. And that's one of the things that I really like about it, show the empath empathetic thing, because, you know, as my grandparents lived through that per period of time that you talked through now, you're very accurate about a lot of things. But I have to fix it, Potemkin's villages on air, because it may seem like a total forgery. If you look at Pokazuha today, yes. then it's like, well, we don't have any documentation from back then, but we can see what they're doing right now when Medvedev is coming to visit. So it's a... It's a they, Potomkin's villages are maybe not exactly as written, but they're certainly super plausible, and something similar to them was done. Maybe not to that extent. Right. That's my thing. But that's a sideshow here. Okay. Because because my listeners have... A, I made a whole episode of Potomkin's villages after that. That's But that's what you're here for. Yeah. That's your, uh, that's uh, your raison d'etre. That's, that's the thing. is like uh, I'm a political philosopher by education and a historian. So one thing about revolutions which caught my eyes is there's a Russian philosopher called Alexander Pyotrgorsky. You should probably read him. He talks about the politicization of society and he does analysis of revolutions in general. He sees patterns in them. Mm -hmm. And he writes that revolutions start when everything becomes politicized. When you either, you know, you dress a certain way, but that, that is already politics. When you go to the store or not go to a certain store or buy a certain brand of good, that nice. already becomes a political decision. The brand wars, yes. Yeah, brand wars and that stuff. And when that reaches a certain peak, then when everything, every aspect of your life becomes politicized, when politics is the central aspect of all of this, then that's when revolution happens. Now he also draws some conclusions by studying from both the French revolutions and the Russian revolutions that then it eventually leads to some sort of totalitarianism, which then eventually crumbles down into more moderate democracies. That is his theory, not mine, but Piatigorsky is not very, very well known um, outside my region. But as a person who's studied a lot of 
revolutions by this point, th there is this pattern of everything getting politicized, certain problems getting more and more acute, and then career point reaching, everything just goes one way or another and it explodes. Then some period of totalitarianism sets in in one way or another, like Robespierre or well, you know, early Bolshevik war economy stuff as well, which he used as examples, and then it kind of mellows down, settles down, and then you get some sort of order. Have you seen this pattern somewhere else? And Usually a pretty corrupt this? order is what yeah, comes out of that. That's, that's, that's the thing, corrupt order, but it kind of you know, mellows order, down. Yeah, they, yeah, it's it's kind of like a volcano. Yeah, as a corrupt order. I do see various patterns that are common between a lot of these revolutions. I think that the biggest pattern is even though we have revolutionaries now and professional revolutionaries that are attempting to pull off a revolution, I think that one of the biggest things that seems to be true is that revolutions happen basically at random. You know, you, you can have the elements in place, but until you get some final synergistic, uh, you know, fifth element that gets thrown into it that nobody can really put their finger on you don't get a revolution. Even if you think you're about to have a revolution, that revolution can go away. And even if you weren't expecting a revolution, the revolution can suddenly happen. Um, these things explode often, seemingly out of nowhere. Or when you're sitting there and you're ready, you're like, here it comes, this is the revolution, the whole thing just fizzles out because uh, the day you were planning your strike or the day you were planning to march on parliament or on the king, uh, it just rained really heavily that day. And so, it didn't happen because people don't stage revolutions in the rain as often as they do in the, the open heat of summer. And then I have to raise a glass to Gavril Princip and his sandwich, though. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about random things, yeah. you know, because I've been to Sarajevo and he's a revolutionary there. And the scenes there is most of the Western world, but there they have a monument to him in the spot where he shot the Archduke. Yeah. Archduke, yeah, yeah. that's that's what's in English. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Archduke. not my native tongue. Archduke Ferdinand, which is a seen as a bizarre occurrence. I mean they were doing that they weren't doing that because they were going to start a giant war. Right? Yeah. That wasn't the plan. And this is the thing, is like even when you have a plan and you go into it and you say, We are revolutionaries. This is what we believe. This is what we are going to try to organize for. And then when the time comes, when we think the moment is right, now we are going to charge in and stage a revolution. I personally, this is the 10th one that I've done. I have yet to find a revolution where the group that emerges after that revolution, even if they're the same people, that they're up to the same stuff after the revolution that they said they were going to be up to before the revolution. I mean, Robespierre didn't go into, he didn't get elected um, to no. the Estates General yeah. thinking Or was it the National Assembly at that point? No, the Estates General, like when he was elected yeah. to the Estates General, yeah. like in May of 1789, um, and they they start pushing the envelope with Louis XVI, they, he didn't think that in a couple of years he was going to be running a dictatorial committee that was, you know, uh, laying down um, uh, uh, price laws and that he was going to be ordering executions of people and that they were going to have to do all this command and control economy stuff. Um well, if, if if you look at in terms of the Russian Revolution, if you look at what you know, sort of the official line of the Bolsheviks or just the Social Democrats generally was in 1914, 1915, 1916, and then you see the kinds of decisions that they're having to make in 1919 and 1920, um, you know, they're they're very different. They have been changed, and because everybody has to respond to events. But as we both know, those people, all the and the dramatists are basically in the Congress of the Dead, as we call them in the Soviet Union. Yes. 
Congress of the Dead is the last Congress before the purges, where basically everyone in that Congress was purged yes. nicely from the next Congress. Yeah, and one of the organizing principles of them in the early going was that the revolution that they staged was going to be a, a world revolution, and that all of their philosophy was wrapped up in the idea that this was going to be the vanguard of a, of a world revolution, and all of their theories were contingent upon everybody else joining in the revolution, and then it sort of started getting going in Germany and places after um, after World War One, and then when those were ultimately crushed, then Russia's, the, the Bolsheviks are sitting there like, well, crap, our entire philosophy was based off of having mm. a world revolution. Now we have to do socialism in one country. I mean, they're, they're improvising on the yeah. fly. Like, revolutionaries, it is basically impossible to predict a revolution from happening. And then when the revolution actually gets going, it's nearly impossible to try to maintain anything like fidelity to principle because you need to make improvised decisions every morning, every afternoon, every night about how you're just going to get through the next 24 hours. And then that's how these things change and, and morph. And a revolution is a process that no one person really has control over. Everybody is just sort of living through it. Well, I have made two conclusions, both from your show and from my studies about revolutions. Mm -hmm. The most important are like, hello kids, you want to make a revolution? Here's how. <laughs> Uh, basically, if you if you are gonna do something, do it all the way. If you do half measures, boom, you're done. If you want to have a revolution, you need to have a revolution. Yes, that because true. that is what what was this guy who won the presidentship in, in Mexico and then was assassinated? Madero. Madero. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm not that educated about that. But first of Madero's example, do not do not do half measures. Second part is like, don't jump on the boat in too early. Jump in on the second wave of revolution. That's a good point. That's a very good point. You let the first wave go through and knock everybody yeah. down. You, you let one group go through and knock everything down. Yeah. There's a guy named Crane Brinton uh, who uh, was a writer back in the mid-20th century, and he did, he did a book called um, uh, Anatomy of Revolution, which did compare the English Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and, uh, oh, of course, the American Revolution. And one of the points that he makes in that getting to following these waves is that there's also a very similar pattern of being on the outside of power. You can say and do a bunch of things, and then once you get into power, now you actually, when you get up in the morning, you have correspondence, you have decrees that need to be written, you have orders to do, you have to actually focus on the day-to-day -day details of running a government. And because that is consuming literally your waking hours, your enemies, your rivals, they're spending all of their waking energy trying to overthrow you. If you're now in the government, if you're like the Girondins, right, let's say, or you're the, you're the provisional government in after February 1917, this, you're is, this is now Losers of Revolutions, the, the show. Yeah, you, you're, you're, you have to focus on actually running a government. You don't have time to also wage this internecine revolutionary squabble among revolutionary factions mm -hmm. because you've got the business of government to attend to. And you can definitely see this in the French Revolution, where anytime you get into power, you're like, yes, I did it. I've overthrown the, the people who were doing it all wrong. And then you land, and you're like, okay, what are we going to do? And they say, well, we're still broke. We still can't raise taxes. We're at war with, with 19 different countries simultaneously. Good luck. And then you're like, well, what do I do? And the next, and, But during that period, well, you're trying to now figure out these problems that were so insurmountable that they actually read to the complete breakdown and collapse of multiple governments, you can't fight off the people who are coming behind you. So as you say, second wave, maybe even third wave, maybe even just sit back and let the whole thing go. And then when everybody has no, written no. it, now you come in and now you're just the corrupt directory and you can make a, yeah. you can make a fat pile of cash as a, as a director. Yeah, but like come in late and take no half measures. That's right. Come in late, no half measures. 
That's not bad advice if you want to be a revolutionary. If you want to be a revolutionary. I tend to, you know, for, for having done all of this, I still tend to be, I find revolutions to be a tragedy, not something that anybody should be aiming for. Dude. I understand this, but this is on my show. Yes. See, we do we do super dark humor there. I just it's because it's because we make gulag jokes often because you know that's how we deal with the eastern border. Yeah, and well, the United States doesn't have gulags. That's a good, that's a cool uh, well, thing about the United States is we don't do mass incarceration. Oh, you don't? That's, yeah, we mm. don't. No, it's um, I, I yeah, you call them internment camps instead. No, we don't <laughs> even call. No, they're um, yeah, they're temporary housing facilities. And um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm, just kidding, I'm really. kidding too. We um, it's it's one of the you know when it comes to comparing and contrasting free democratic America and evil totalitarian Soviet Union, one of the very first things that will always be brought up is the gulags, right? All yeah. the, they had gulags. And you're like, you, you guys do realize we have, like, so many people in prison. <laughs> like, so many people in prison. Um, we should probably, if, if we're going to accuse the Soviets of being uh, horrible totalitarians because of the gulags, we should maybe deal with our own prison. I think they weren't. Complex. I think they weren't. A- all the, the gulags were the least part of all this actually yeah which is now I get to the part of the show where I want to explain to you the things that I've, I've noticed so far okay like I said about the Potomkins village because mm-hmm. we have a whole history of Pokazuka of doing things just for show that Potomkins village is just like that's the beginning of all this because in modern day Russia a couple of days ago they literally painted the trees green with paint because because Medvedev is going to drive next to it and put like nice facades over places so Potomkins villages even if not documented uh, everyone in Russia will tell you that no, real okay, thing. Okay, true. Okay. See, that, that's the thing. A lot of stuff that happens in Russia is hard to understand. Another thing is that uh, my own country, Latvia, we often forget, we like to pretend that we're uh, very vulnerable and that we were totally conquered by the Soviets. And then they tend to forget that, yeah, Lenin's first guard were basically Latvian red riflemen. And then they tend to forget that in uh, the NKVD, before Stalin's purges, up to 1937, uh, Latvians were the second largest nationality first one was the Jews, second one was the Latvians, then Russians were somewhere else. But due to anti-Semitism and xenophobia of Stalin, which is very weird, he basically, well, purged all of them. And Jews were there not because of some conspiracy, just because, well, hey, we want to work for our own country. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, either Zion, Zionism or that. So all this national question is, is super interesting. But the revolution and the things are, that are happening are going on even to this day. If you think about it, I live in a country that whose revolution has like been hit a lot, and a lot of people tend to forget how much you know in the Baltics it actually hurt us, because we have a proud history of being anarchists and revolutionaries. Like if you heard of Ed Leedskalnich, the guy who built the Coral Castle in Florida. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. No. There's a massive coral castle, which is like the single dude, 5'3", builds a massive from two-ton blocks, a castle that he moves it around in Florida, and it's, it's been a lot of supernatural shows. Okay. He, he's basically a great craftsman. The problem is he was also a Freemason, mm-hmm. a staunch atheist, and a terrorist. Because in 1905, he was one of the guys who shot his local baron, always carried the rifle with him. After that revolution failed, well, uprising failed, he moved to Canada, then through Canada to the United States. Uh, he apparently cured his tuberculosis via magnetism, because that's why he's on Supernatural shows. Okay, sure. But sure. he worked in Peter the Painter's gang, if you know who those guys are. Peter the Painter's gang is the reason why United Kingdom's cops carry guns these days. That was a Latvian anarchist gang who robbed banks and sent back money to the Russian Empire uh, for their fellow colleagues to do that. Look up Peter the Painter. He was one of the carpenters there. It's just that he's one of the famous Latvians who did this. And there's a lot of figures from, like, all of our Baltic states and all that stuff because a lot of people in my country view this revolution, Russian revolution, as a chance of, of us breaking free and doing stuff. Getting our independence, those are the nationalistic forces, but they're also the pro Soviet forces. And that was the biggest mess when I did my Civil War episode. Because you not only have this huge mess in the Russian Empire between like class system, mm-hmm. you have, in my case, three different groups of Latvians, the pro German noble forces mm-hmm. fighting, you have pro Soviet forces fighting, and you have like independent Latvian forces fighting, and that's just in that one territory. Multiply that by the size of the Russian Empire throwing the Mad Baron in there which is just, you know, doing his own terror and of course if anyone conquers your territory they expect a new wave of terror and something because what I'm saying is that whenever a revolution hits in a sufficiently large country the rivers of blood that flow are truly truly crazy and that is why like I wrote to you on Twitter sometimes it's hard for me to make these episodes about tragedy because you know, it's my relatives I'm talking mm-hmm. about, and, and I know relatives who were on all sides, and I'm just wondering how it's like here in the United States. How are you dealing with this? Does it get personal sometimes to you, for your relatives and for your loved ones? As, as you now live in France, maybe you've encountered some of this. It's, it is different for me than it is for you on all of those fronts. You know, I am from Seattle, Washington, originally. Okay. I have actually been there. That's, Black- where, I'm, that's where I'm from. Right. Well, I, I've seen Black Hole Sun, mate. And I was called a techie in a dive bar there because I wear a suit. Yeah, sure. Well, they're, you, and you, you have an accent, and so I'm sure they just assume they flew you in uh, to help take over the world. But Something. so Something. I, th- I think that everything that you're describing, I think, is part of the reason why the American Civil War can still continue to be such a uh, vibrant, contentious event that people are super passionate about talking about because I think that people do see their own families being a part of it both on the north and in the south I think that that feeds a lot of World War II you know a lot of the interest in World War II I think is for those same reasons because we all had our grandparents all fought in that war Um, now for me my own personal story is that a lot of my background is uh, Cornish miners who came 
straight to California to do hard rock mining in California, like after the panning for gold part of the gold rush was up, and they needed to do hard rock mining in the later 1900s. Okay, so that's a huge chunk that come just straight to California. Uh, another group comes from Scotland through like British Columbia into the state of Washington. So I'm like this sort of like on this axis between like San Francisco and Seattle, and then that's quote unquote my people. <laughs> that's like where we're from. So we didn't even really participate in the Civil War. So much of this is academic for me and removed for me. And the closest that I get to a lot of what I have written about is going to, you know, I live in Paris now, and I do walk through the streets. Oh, I'm like, so sorry. You know, I, I know it's a, ter- it's a terrible thing, but when you go, when, you know, walking around... No, that's a, that's a European joke about living in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hey, Paris is not a bad place to live, especially with kids. Uh, but, um, oh, oh. But walking around, sure. rock, walking around Montmartre, for example, is for me not just necessarily about it's a nice district to go see music or or enjoy cafes. Like I, you know, when you go through the Paris Commune episodes, and you know what actually happened on some of these streets and what people are actually going through here, it does have an impact on you personally. But oh. I do think that being removed a bit from what I'm talking about, I think that that's that is something mm. that is different for us. That is one of the things because you know there's a saying that I heard on, I think it was the podcast that ended was like it was about unifying Italy, mm-hmm. and they said a great saying. I don't I, I don't know who said it originally, but it was, hundred years in Europe is a short time, hundred miles in America is a short way. Basically, hundred miles in the United States is nothing. Hundred years in Europe is nothing. Right. Okay. That's the thing, and that's the attitude. Because in Europe, hundred miles is a very long stretch. That of land. is very true. Meanwhile, hundred years here. You know, I was a tour around Boston here, and with my own city built in twelve oh one, and I'm like, we have this old church here, and I'm like, yeah, sure, I have breweries that are older. From that. It's true, and I mean, it's, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it gets to. You know the, but it's not to disrespect anyone. It's just that no, it, it, it creates a completely different attitude towards life. Because on my first trip to the United States, I went here for the last year of education, and Boston is still kind of like kitty gloves zone for Europeans traveling to sure. To in, 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 to, in, ter- in terms of European history, so to, so to get to find uh, those things in the United States of America. Wait, wait, wait. And then I flew to LA and Seattle, and then it was like, yep, they call this new world for a reason. It is just might as well be Mars to me. Right, and so to f- to find those ancient things, you have to move off of the very visible European colonial settlement that is the United States of America, and move over to the indigenous populations and the Native Americans. Because I've even joked about this in the past that you know, like where I grew up, the oldest building was built in like 1908, and they you know they got it roped off with red velvet ropes. Like this is the ancient cabin, you know, and it's like from a hundred years ago. Um, but on that same spot, you know, the, the not visible remains, but you can still, these things still exist, these people still exist, were the people who did live here for tens of thousands, 20,000 years. Like, because in, in Europe, the indigenous and native population emerged and grew out of itself, essentially. Yeah, like, and, like, and like we did in Latvia, yeah. because we were there before Christianity came to us, before the Northern Crusade. Exactly. And we still have our pagan traditions, and the fact that our capital Riga was like founded in 1201 basically means that Bishop Albert during the Northern Crusades just came and said oh yeah we're placing the Christian church right here 
Not to mention that we've been living there since, I don't know, super long time ago. Yeah. We, we are those, like, native people exactly. who just happen to westernize. Exactly. And there was, I mean, I was in, I was in Nice... And, uh, you know, there's a cave in Nice that has been, whatever, occupied by humans off and on for, for like 500,000 years or something. I'm probably exaggerating that a little bit. But it is something, like, insane. Like, it was, it was a, a little cave that they come through on, a, on an annual migration. And that wasn't allowed to happen in the United States because of European settler colonialism. Because Europe projected itself onto this new world. And all of, all of those civilizations that could have then grown up, and you would sit there and you would say, my God, look at this. This, this goes back 10,000 years or 20,000 years. That, that, that was erased. It was truly and almost literally bulldozed. I, I and kind of over. don't like the term European being used here because, you know, when the Northern Crusade happened, well, it turns out, um, well, physically I'm as white as you are, except I've had a, I have a papal bull from... 1189 saying that no 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 those those pagan people in the baltics they're they're actually a different race of people right the pope said so okay so not not european <laughs> the the uh the group of people who were uh had been recently conquered by the castilians uh the dutch the english it's a the, long study the, it's a super some complex per, thing. some parisians and some people hugging the coast of the atlantic seaboard who were Breton, but now they're French. French. <laughs> you know, okay. But so they're Europe. They're all Europe, Europe, Western European. Europe, Europe gets complicated, and yeah. I really, really that's what I like about your show because you get like really in depth into this. Before I met both you and Dan, there was like this running gag about podcasting community in general that there are the worshippers of Dan. Praise be to Dan. Praise be to Dan. And then there are worshippers of Mike Duncan, ah. and you're kind of the the antipode of that. But now you know. Now you've been in the show together, which I listened to, and it's like. A reformation has occurred. Ah, yeah. Hegelian dialectics <laughs> in action. Uh, you know, we've always been cool with each other. We have, we have different. We just have different styles. I know. It's, it's great. I know. And, I th- and I think we both. Um, he's got a book. I'll pl- I should plug my book, but you know, uh, he's got a book. He's got a book coming out too. Dan does. That's a spoiler. Yeah. He hasn't said about it. Yeah, it's coming. Okay, it's nice. It's about the. Uh, it's about all the times that Armageddon has happened. Oh yeah, no, I would, I would so buy that book. Yeah, it's a good, it's cool, it's a cool book because you know we we always, I mean, even the the coming climate apocalypse, you know, it's like the end of humanity. Is it going to be the end of humanity, or is it going to be just the end of like ninety nine percent of humanity, and there will still be pockets of humans? No, nah, we're in Baltics. Are, we're in Baltics are going to be super cool. Nothing ever happens in the Baltics. You guys are going to be fine. Uh, Should I move to the Baltics? Is it going to pretty much be because bad? nothing ever happens in the Baltics? We have no volcanoes, no nothing. Like the Baltics are the most boring place ever in history. Except that people tend to forget that, yeah, you can say that Riga was built in 1201, except then you have to forget from the history of Rome part there. Uh, Riga holds the entry port to Daugava, and then Daugava, if you go upstream Daugava, then you get to the point like 100 meters from where uh, Venus starts, which takes you to the Black Sea. So Daugava, like Riga is the entry point where all the Varangian Guard Right, sure. They, yeah, there. exactly, exactly. So we have all the we, we have all the excavations there, and for and for one for one brief little blip in what is nineteen eighty nine, the whole world had to learn that there was a thing called Latvia. Yeah, because of the Baltic and, Way and, right? and Lithuania and Estonia, and we we had to we, like there's a what now, because we you know we learned uh, we learned geography on a on a big on, on a map I that was know. red, and everything everything east of Germany was just 
And I tried. Red. And I tried to explain. And it was so easy. And then, and then it all broke up. And then it got really hard. No, that's what I'm doing when I show. I'm trying to explain the story of my people. Yeah. Because unlike you, you work with historical materials, obviously. Mm-hmm. But a lot of my show is, well, I start, I'm more of the dance school of podcasting. But what I do is I went and interviewed people who were in the Afghanistan war. I went to the people who worked with Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten the life studies from the people. And my latest episode, like previous one for you, dear listeners of mine, and if you're going to plug this show, hey, check this out. I found a cookbook from 1942 during the Nazi occupation about how wartime kitchen and how to prepare like foods and those those things. And you, you might think it's kind of boring, but when they basically tell you how to make uh, ramen noodle cakes and how to squeeze out the maximum nutrition for the minimum of products, and then other thing kicks in. It's 1942, the Germans are winning the war, so this is the cookbook for the winning side of the war with rationing and everything. And then what kicks in it is that it's actually a reprint of the book printed in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed for practical reasons so that we could survive the collapse. So it goes downhill. But yeah, it's a side note of the fact that that's why we have this terrible dark humor. And, you know, to wrap this up, I please, please, if you can, look at the Odessa jokes, put in some political anecdotes. Because that's one thing that we shared with the Ashkenazi culture and the whole Soviet thing starting from the very beginning is terrible, ridiculous political jokes that helped us through all these dark times, as you said, revolution is a tragedy. And the most popular one is this, like, you know, the Soviet Union is standing in front of a great crevice, but we're going to march forward and take that great leap towards communism. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, I am, I am actually starting to imagine what it, it would have been like because I actually do feel a little, you know, li- living through, let's say, the Soviet Union um, had to have been a constant sort of assault on your, on rational faculties. And privacy. Yeah, and just trying to uh-huh. live your life while also being bombarded with something that maybe was not lining up exactly. Like you, like... The minister of whatever is saying something, and you're like, "Wow, this is complete bullshit!" Like what this guy is saying. Um, you know, we've always had trouble with. I mean, politicians lie. Politicians are dishonest, but you can't they, say anything about it, right? And the internal fear atmosphere was the worst because the KGB uh, KGB you were, agents you were stuck. You couldn't even. I can so I, I, so I can feel these things that are assaulting my psyche on a daily basis right mm-hmm. now um, in what we would now call Trump's America. That at least I can gripe about it on Twitter. I guess that's the yeah, but imagine, I can, I can, I can but imagine that if any of your Twitter followers would then be hired to send the reports there. So that is what I've noticed. Americans are way more extroverted and friendly. We were we were basically you know you always you, you can be friendly and nice, but you have to be suspicious towards your neighbors. Yeah, sure. And then you use political jokes as a means of testing out who's really? who's who. Okay, sure. Okay. In, in the sense that you you say a mild political joke and see if they laugh, and then you go a bit further, and then you know once you learn next thing you know you're you're making Molotov cocktails in the basement together. Yeah, like if you trust them enough, if yeah. you trust them enough, that's the thing. But but I really really enjoy enjoy this atmosphere to bring it out because I think that out of all people, out of all the people that could do this, I think you're going to do it right. Because in my show, I mostly focused on the Baltics in the Lenin's episode and on and on Lenin himself, and I quote a lot of his speeches, and I went like philosophical, mostly about moons and themes. Because due to my limited resources and the things I had to do at that time, oh boy. Once you get to 1919, then, comrade, just take a vacation. Come to Riga. We'll give you some vodka and take you around. Because I know what's going to happen in 1919. Yeah, it 
it's going to be a huge mess. And I don't know when I'm ever... That, I mean, it, the I will say this, too, um, that probably the Russian Revolution will be the last revolution that I do. Please don't. Because I don't... I think it's just going to go, and then the show will be over. That's what I think is going to happen. Well, do you have any plans after that? Right now, I don't have any specific plans for what happens after the summer twenty. Can I? Can I? Give everybody's you one gonna, advice. Everybody's going to pitch me on something. So no, let's no, hear no. It. my pitch. Yes, what's your pitch? The major restoration, Japan. Oh, sure, stuff. sure. Because, like, okay, Dan did the supernova of the East about how, and he spoke about you know. As a as a side note of his show about like and then they westernized in twenty years got all this packed in, but I feel that you have the competence and the ability to actually do step by step, beat by beat analysis of well westernization of Japan. It is a revolution on its own, oh, just of a different kind. Yeah, I would I would put it in the category of revolution. I had a starting list of like uh, twenty or twenty five different things that I would have uh, would have talked about. Yeah, mm-hmm. when I was thinking through it to begin with, and I think that the number is just going to wind up having been uh, 10. 10 is the number of revolutions that I did. Well, of course, you're not going to cover the Neolithic Revolution, but that's an archaeology joke already. Well, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe. You know, I will say before we leave, though, um, that so I was talking people through historical materialism and was talking about the Neolithic Revolution and mentioned as a joke, as an obvious joke, that the ancient aliens taught us how to farm. Like, that's what the Neolithic Revolution was, that we didn't know how to farm, yeah. and the aliens came down and taught us how to farm. And I, I made that joke because I wanted to move quickly through getting, you know, when did, how, did we, how did we figure out how to farm, right? Like, that's, that's an entire series. That's, a, that's an entire series you could talk about what was happening then. So I made this really obvious joke a couple times about how ancient aliens... And I'm getting emails from people. They're like, do you really believe that ancient aliens were here and taught us how to how to do farm. I'm like, no, I don't. Why do you think I would believe that? I, I, feel, I feel like after all of the history of Rome and all of revolutions that I've earned the right to make jokes about ancient aliens without oh, people uh, thinking that, there's that a, I'm actually being serious. There's, there's a similar kind of vanity jokes because, you know, Armenian radio jokes were super popular. They were all created in Odessa, which is a special type of place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the capital of Ashkenazi Jews in, in, in Soviet Union. And they made Armenian radio jokes. It used to be like fun radio program. And Armenian radio gets asked in the 50s, is there life on Mars? Armenian radio stumbles for a bit and then answers. Well, we don't know. But when we will finally build communism there, there won't be any life there anymore. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Let it go out on that. Let it go out on that. Let it go out on that. Thank you, comrade. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.